1: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Books Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today we'll be talking with author Judith L. Person, author of The Crusade to Heal America, The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. And please just call me Judy. We had to use Judith because amazingly, when my first book came out, there was another Judy Pearson. So they said, well, are you Judith? And I said, yes. So that's why I'm Judith on my book covers, but just Judy to people.
1: Great. I wonder, Judy, if you could tell us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project.
2: I am intrigued by people in general, um, men and women, who have behaved in an extraordinarily courageous manner when they didn't have to. It's one thing to save someone from a burning building or have to protect yourself against an intruder. But the people I love to write about are people who could have just sat back and done nothing. And Mary Lasker certainly fits that bill. Um I now realize because I've already started my next book, I realize that I've written an accidental trilogy all out of order sort of like George Lucas and and Star Wars. So the Mary Lask or Mary Lasker was um made an appearance in a book that came out in 2021 called um, From Shadows to Life, which is a biography of the cancer survivorship movement, and so the, that book begins with the story of Mary. Um, and I was just, I was so intrigued by the little bit that I had learned about her that I realized she certainly deserved her own her own story. So she would actually be this book would actually be the first in the trilogy. The one I just mentioned would be the last, and the one I'm currently working on would be the middle.
1: (laughs) Well, that sounds exciting. You know, you started the book um, talking about New York. How was New York such a special place for Mary, and what happened during that New York period?
2: Mary was fortunate enough to be the daughter of um, not only a family family, means. Her father was a successful banker in a little town in Wisconsin. So it was sort of a big fish in a little pond. And she was born, I should say, in 1899. But she was also um, greatly influenced by her mother, who was sort of a never-take-no-for-an-answer kind of person. Her mother had immigrated all alone from Ireland at the age of 18. And And gave Mary that same sense of confidence. And so when Mary graduated from college as an art history major, she graduated from Radcliffe. um, She just knew that New York was the place to be because that was the art center in the United States at that time. So in 1923, when she arrived, she in fact herself says New York was the place to be. And it certainly was. It was the height of um, the Roaring Twenties, the new woman they called women who had just received the vote, and they could come and go as they chose, and skirts were shorter. It was just a fun place to be when you were in your twenties.
1: Now, she met her husband, Paul. Tell us about that.
2: She got a a job, her first job, was at an art gallery, and again, fresh from college, she was all excited about this job, only to find out what she was supposed to be doing is dusting the paintings and moving around little objects of art and not really digging into art as she had hoped. But she was very interested, not only in the old masters, but in the up and coming type of art called um, Impressionism, which of course today is very familiar. So she was fortunate enough to be offered a job by Paul, who was running his family's art gallery. His father had started it, and then when his father died, um, Paul took it over, and he allowed Mary a lot more latitude. In fact, Mary Lasker, at the time she was Mary Woodard, is responsible for bringing Marc Chagall, the very famous um, Russian French Impressionist artist, to the United States for his very first showing. And she also brought um, a Spanish painter as well, and they were very successful. And so while Mary was loving what she was doing, Paul was beginning to love Mary, and he asked her to marry him, and she said she would as long as he would stop drinking. He was an alcoholic, she thought, and she was not about to take take that on. So he did quit drinking,
1: and she did marry him. Now, what happened during the Depression years?
2: Well he suffered from types of depression and mental illness at those in those years was not very well defined certainly those who suffered from mental illness were not very well taken care of, Um, and so most families, if they could, tried to keep their loved ones out of asylums, and so in addition to having this penchant for drink and this underlying depression, when the Great Depression hit and people stopped buying artwork, the gallery started to falter, and instead of trying to bolster it up, which is what Mary wanted to do, Paul went back to drinking and just closed himself off. And Mary just said to herself, well, you know, it's going to kill me along with him. I'm going to have to move on. And she did. She um, divorced him and started her own business making dress patterns uh, or having dress patterns made that were endorsed by celebrities. So people could still go to movies and escape their their horrible lives during the Depression, and be inspired by the beautiful actresses. And those same actresses endorsed Mary's pattern. So she had quite a little thriving business going.
1: Now, during the business time, her father died. Tell us what happened and how that led her to another journey.
2: He did. Um, He had, um, he was at the bank working. Um, He was at a board of directors meeting and suffered a massive stroke. They brought him to the house and um, there was just nothing that could be done for him. And in a few hours he died. And Mary had already been interested in other areas of illness, mental illness, certainly, um, but heart disease. And in those days, they grouped heart attacks and strokes um, into, excuse me, heart, I beg your pardon. Heart attacks and strokes were two separate diseases. Now we know they're, they're cousins. Um, 75% of American deaths were caused either by a cancer or, or by um, heart disease, including heart attacks and strokes. And she just refused to accept what so many people did, and that was just simply to say it was God's will.
1: Now, in Chapter 2, you talk about Mary meeting Albert Lasker. Tell us about his life before they met.
2: Albert is known as the father of modern advertising, Um, He was 20-some years older than Mary, and he began his advertising career only because his father really wanted him to. Albert wanted to be a newspaper man, and that was not a good enough job in his father's eyes. So dad said, look, you go to Chicago, you go to work for my friends at this ad agency, if after two years... You can't make a go of it. I'll let you go into newspapers. Albert hated it. He didn't mind Chicago so much. He had come from Galveston, so Chicago was a Galveston, Texas. So Chicago was a big city, but he really hated the ad business. There were no pictures. There were no slogans. Um, Albert didn't know yet what was missing. He only knew that ads consisted of just columns of text that weren't really much different than the newspaper articles themselves and our magazine articles themselves. And he would have left and gone into newspapers, except he lost $500 gambling and he had to go to his boss to ask for a loan who said, I'll give you the loan, but you're going to have to stay until until you work it off. And Albert decided to really apply himself. And by... Fate met a guy who was an artist and the two of them together changed advertising. They started including graphics. He ultimately came up with the names Sunkist and SunSweet and Kleenex. He um, used slogans like, One of his biggest clients was Lucky Strike. So the old day ads, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. That was Albert Lasker's idea. And he ultimately bought out his two partners and became fabulously wealthy as an ad man. He had married a woman with whom he had three children. They were deeply in love, but she was very um, physically ill. She suffered from a variety of things. And... Uh, she too had, they guessed it was a stroke. They never really um, were able to find out what took her life, but she died. He was heartbroken. Then he married um, an actress. That turned out very poorly. And so he just declared, I'm going to find the right woman if I have to marry ten, 10 of them. And Mary was number three, and and that was all it took.
1: Now, you talk about... Um albert's medical issues in the 1940s what did he suffer from
2: probably some type of bipolar um, disease he he would become very manic about things he was he was very curious in nature he loved learning but then whatever he was learning at the time that was all he could think of and all he wanted to focus on and he had to work very hard. He was, he was really Johnny Hustle when it came to, um, the advertising business. And so he would go through periods of this manic activity followed by periods of melancholy. And because he was able, um, he would go away to Tucson. He went several times, Tucson, Arizona to some kind of a, um, a retreat where there were, there was no mail, there were no phones. He When he met Mary, he would be driven once a week to the closest telephone, uh, Tucson at that time. Tucson still is not a huge city, but at that time it was really small. So he'd be driven to a telephone so he could speak with Mary. But um, she said to him, you know, I, I really think you could be helped by psychoanalysis. Now she'd asked her first husband to follow that route. She was very intrigued by Freud and um, by the Menninger family who had a clinic in Kansas. And so she said her first husband, Uh, to be psychoanalyzed. And when he came home, she said, how'd it go? And he said, fine. And she said, are you going back? Or when are you going back? And he said, I'm not. I've been analyzed. That's it. Albert was completely different. He was fascinated by the process. And he asked the doctor as many questions as the doctor asked him. And Albert went religiously several times a week for a very long time, mostly just to sit and, and talk to the doctor. But what it did for him was allow him to forgive himself, he said. He felt somehow responsible for his wife's death, felt that he hadn't spent as much time with her as he had with his business. And it just really changed his life.
1: Now, when Mary married Albert, she told him that she did not want to be a kept woman. So what was her plan?
2: Well, she had this great business with the, with the dress patterns. She also had become good friends with, um, an architectural designer. And so she kind of served as a networker for him and then made a, a little, um, had a, a little commission on, on the side of the things that he pulled together. Um, but when people so when people would come to their very lavish townhouse looking for donations for a variety of um, charities, she'd say, Well, I'd love to be able to help you, but I, I simply can't. And of course they'd look around this house with all its gorgeous furniture and and the size of the house and the servants, and they couldn't figure out what she was talking about. And so Albert and his son were talking one day, his eldest son. And Edward said to his father, it's ridiculous that Mary doesn't have her own money. I absolutely insist that you have to have to do something about this. And so Albert called her to his office, wrote her a check for three million dollars, which is an astronomical sum today. It's more uh, in the vicinity of 50 million dollars and said to her, "Okay, here's your money you can do with it as you wish. You can buy clothes. You can uh, invest it. This is your money to do with as you wish. All I ask is that you pay your own telephone bills. He hated the telephone and she was on the telephone quite a bit and was more connected, more wired uh, in her later years even. So she paid the telephone bill and he took care of all the other household expenses. And now she had money that she could use to donate and to begin collecting art.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Now, she had so many famous friends. Tell us about Mary's connection with Margaret Sanger.
2: You know, the interesting thing about Margaret Sanger... Um, is that her story has morphed quite a bit over the over the years, and her original mission was lost back in the uh, at the turn of the 20th century, which is when Margaret um, was beginning her career in public health. Women were just baby machines. They there you could not buy contraceptives. You could not use the word contraceptive um, in a newspaper. You could not advertise contraceptives. And so women just... Kept getting pregnant. And sadly, so many of them died during childbirth because we didn't have a lot of the wonderful medical advantages that we have today. Margaret herself was one of 17 children. Her mother died when she was, when the mother was like 39. Margaret was responsible then for taking care of her younger siblings. And she just decided that she was not going to sit by and and let this happen. So she married the man who created WD-40, the stuff that stops squeaky hinges, and he would take boxes of WD-40 to Canada and take the little can of, of the lubricant out and fill the boxes with condoms and bring them back to the U.S. and Margaret would pass them out She made just about as many headlines as she did um, court appearances. She was arrested constantly. But Mary really was interested in this whole idea of of a birth control movement. Margaret started an organization called the American Foundation Foundation for the control of birth control or for the uh, American Birth Control Foundation, something like that, which was such an unwieldy title that once Albert met met Mary Sanger uh, or Margaret Sanger, he said, you know, we got to change the name for this. This is really, you're planning people's parenthood. So this should be called Planned Parenthood. And it was.
1: Another um, friend of Mary was Anna. How did she introduce her to Eleanor Roosevelt?
2: Anna Rosenberg was so the the Laskers loved people. They loved entertaining and they met Anna Rosenberg at a party and in turn were having lunch with her one day when she told uh, them that she was about to get on a train. This was uh, in New York. She was going to get on a train, go to Chicago and then take a train up to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And when they left the lunch, Albert just was so concerned about Anna's health. That was a long way to go for treatment. It must be something serious. So he called up all of his very powerful friends in Chicago who met Anna at the train Took her off in a wheelchair, spirited her away to the mayor's house where she spent the night, took her back to the train station, put her on the train to Rochester, Minnesota. And while she was surprised and very embarrassed, Anna never forgot the kindness. So they became very good friends. And as Mary's interest in medical research and the horrible lack of it in the U.S. grew, Anna said, um, I I can help you with people in, in high places. And Albert encouraged Mary to go after medical research funding at the federal government level, because he said, even our money can't pay for the kind of research that you want to cure cancer and, and abate heart disease. But I know where we can find money. He had been the head of the shipping board under um, President uh, Harding, and so between Albert's uh, encouragement and Anna's connections um Mary met the Roosevelts and they were just the first uh, first family that Mary knew right up until her death
1: now the war was going on and Mary read this book Victory Through Air Power how did that book play a role in what she was about and how did that change so much
2: did, uh, General De Svorsky, um wrote the book, and he also did quite a bit of public speaking to um, publicize the book. And Mary was intrigued by his ideas that unless in 1943, unless we began fighting the Nazis and the Japanese through the air... We couldn't we didn't have a path to winning. We had the air power, it just wasn't being used. President Roosevelt was a Navy guy, and to his mind, the Navy was the end all be all when it came to fighting. We'd had planes during World War One, but nothing like were being developed on both sides during World War Two. Mary got Albert to read the book, and Albert in turn insisted that the general come and visit and then said to him, What can we do? Ultimately, they wrote letters to all their powerful friends, including Walt Disney. Walt Disney had already been producing films that would run as shorts in the movie theaters about the war, about America's success, by war bonds, all those kinds of messages. So Disney produced a film called Victory Through Air Power, then they had a screening for a thousand of their friends. They gave autographed copies to all of them, and the screening was held at a huge hotel ballroom in um, in New York. And it took quite a bit to get it finally into the hands of FDR, and it was Churchill. Winston Churchill, who finally at one of their, um, conferences sat FDR down and said, you've got to see this film. And then church or then FDR bought the idea of air power, which of course did indeed change the war because not only were we able to command the skies over Europe, but more importantly, um, in, um, in Asia, Asia was so spread out, that was a really tough nut to crack. So thanks really to the Laskers, World War II um, changed completely in our favor.
1: Another group of friends, Dan and Florence Mahoney. What was that uh, connection like with Mary and Albert?
2: Dan Mahoney was the publisher of the Miami uh, Daily News and the Laskers went to Florida frequently in the wintertime, and in fact, Albert owned quite a chunk of land on Miami Beach right near where the Mahonies lived. It was it was the place to be. The house, unfortunately, now their house, unfortunately, is now gone. It's, it's a big condominium building because I looked to be sure that it wasn't still there and something I could go look at, um, but they became good friends, the Laskers and the Mahonies, and then Uh, When Florence met Mary, she just knew instantly that they would become friends as well. And they were. And they both had the same interest in health issues of the time. So in addition to birth control, um, we've already talked about mental illness and cancer and heart disease. So France uh, Florence was really interested in mental illness, and that was the first attempt the two of them made together to lobby Congress to create an Institute of Mental Health at the National Institutes of Health. Up until that point in time, the NIH was singular. There was just one institute. And Mary said, that's ridiculous. There should be an institute for each disease. So the Mental Health Institute, after hours of lobbying um, at a time when women were not very often seen in the halls of Congress, there was money allocated for uh, an institute of health, of mental health.
1: Now, um, medical research, Tell us about the Albert and Mary Lasker Foundation. What was their mission, and when did it start?
2: It sort of began when they made a visit to what was then the largest cancer institute in the country called the Rockefeller Institute, and which is now Rockefeller University, and um, the Laskers knew the man in charge and went to see him. Dr. Greg was his name. And so they said to him, so what exactly is being done in the way of finding a cure for cancer? And Dr. Greg said nothing. And they kind of were mystified and asked, well, why? And Dr. Gregg explained, because there aren't any new ideas. And when they got home, the Laskers realized that it was sort of a chicken or the egg. Does the idea come first and then the research, or does the research produce the idea and then there's more research? And Albert said, well, or Mary said, well, if there aren't any new ideas, we better Get on the hustle and see that somebody comes up with some new ones. So in 1940, they began the foundation with the idea of funding what Albert called research bargains. He wanted to give a little bit of money, a thousand dollars, to people who were working on things that could very easily change. The fortune for many, and the first Lasker awards were given out in 1942. They are still being given out seventy some years later. Seventy, this will be seventy second year, uh, seventy two years later, seventy seven years later. Sorry, and um, they now are two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and many. Over a third of the Lasker winners have gone on to win a Nobel Prize, so they're now called the American Nobels.
1: Now, in Chapter 4, you talk about um, grassroots and the women's feel army, the door-to-door campaigns. Tell us about that.
2: Well, that's part of the American Cancer Society, which at the time was called the American Society for the Control of Cancer. Mary and Florence went to visit the headquarters then in New York and talked to the doctor who ran the organization and asked him the same question that they'd asked Dr. Gregg, what are you doing to research for the cure for cancer? And he had the same answer, nothing. They ran on a $50,000 a year budget and really it was it was a, a small group of doctors that's what they consisted of they she asked what they used their money for and he explained that they put together pamphlets of the warning signs of cancer and then the field army was made up of tens of thousands of women across the country Knocked on doors and handed out the pamphlet with the warning signs. And the money that they uh, were able to raise, which again was not much, simply funded the next year's pamphlets. Now it made sense to send women out because women probably are still considered um, the healthcare leaders in a family. Um, and so that's how it came to be called the Women's Field Army. So Mary donated $5,000. Now, mind you, that's a tenth of their entire annual budget and said she'd be back and the doctor said asked if she thought maybe albert would be on the board and she said i'll ask him so as she was leaving she said to florence they don't want to cure cancer they just want to control it and the sad fact was that at that time one only one in four people diagnosed with cancer survived. It was it was killing at a great rate. And of course, the numbers of diagnoses continued to go up every year. Albert agreed to be on the board, but with some changes. So the first thing he did, as he had done for Planned Parenthood, he changed the name to the American Cancer Society. Then he suggested that they not only that he joined the board, but some other lay people, people who weren't doctors, who had skills that could be used to publicize the American Cancer Society's work and to increase their donations. And so they sort of staged a coup and enlarged the board by five, including friends from advertising and other areas um, that weren't medicine that would be able to help them, all very well-heeled friends of the Laskers. It was an enormous success because their very first year of being at the helm, they raised over $4 million, which was just an astronomical amount of money. The next year, Albert said, okay here's how we're going to run this campaign this year. And the doctors started to argue. And he said, well, if you don't want to do it my way, there's the door. And some of them left. Some of them remained. They increased the fundraising yet again. And one of their successful ways of doing that was by using the very successful radio program, Fibber McGee and Molly. Cancer had never been said. The word cancer had never been said on the radio. And at the end of one of their broadcasts, Trevor McGee and Molly did a short discussion about one of their friends who might possibly have cancer. Turns out he didn't, but they talked about it and you know the end was a was a call for money. If you hear this and you're so inclined send a dollar, send 50 cents, send whatever, whatever you can. It was the height of World War II. They got money from ships in the Pacific
1: Now, Albert had a medical scare, and he was hospitalized for seven months. What did Mary do?
2: She was very worried. You're talking about his first cancer diagnosis? Yes. Yeah. She was extremely worried about him. She was beginning to learn about cancer. As a cancer survivor myself, I can tell you, you you don't even know what you don't know until you get cancer or someone you love gets cancer, and then all of a sudden you go to cancer university. There was a lot less um, accessible at that time, but Mary by this time already had friends at the National Institutes of Health, at other major hospitals around the country, and um, she was terrified for him. And it was it's always been called an abdominal cancer. Um, or an intestinal cancer, I suspect it was probably colon, because he smoked, he, um, you know, probably ate a lot of rich meat, Uh, they entertained a lot, so they probably didn't exercise much, so it was most probably colon cancer, and um, once it was gone, they hoped it was going to be gone forever.
1: Now, um, I thought this was interesting, the cherry trees. How important were those cherry trees?
2: Mary's mother, as I mentioned earlier, was a huge um, advocate for, well, she was a huge influence on Mary, and she was an advocate for beautification. She loved all the flowers in her native Ireland. So she built parks in Watertown, Wisconsin, where they lived. After her father's death, Mary's mother came to live with her and they had a rooftop garden. So Mary inherited this love of flowers. And she did a number of things um, in both New York and Washington, D.C., in honor of her mother. And f- because of her own love for flowers. So she had cherry trees planted on the riverside of the United Nations in Albert's honor after he died. And she had also planted the center of Park Avenue in New York City. So for any of your listeners in New York or anybody who's ever visited New York City, all those gorgeous planters in the center of Park Avenue those are Mary Lasker's doings and just like so many of the programs she started those continue today.
1: Now President Kennedy and Mary Lasker, how did that relationship help the Cancer Society?
2: Mary was very good friends with Rose Rose Kennedy. And so it just stood to reason that when Jack was elected, that she would be able to just ring up the White House and say, I'd like an appointment with the president. And he was glad to, um, to include her because she donated uh, heavily to his campaign. He wanted her, she wanted to start a commission, to investigate, a federal commission, to investigate the causes of cancer. He wanted her to head up a cultural society, a federal cultural organization. He said it was a shame that in a country like the United States, there wasn't um, a cultural organization at the federal level. Every other major city in the world had them. And Mary was really at a crossroads, because you don't tell your president no, but on the other hand, it wasn't what she wanted to do. So she said, well, I'll think about it. So he asked her to attend one of the organizational meetings. She said, I uh, relied heavily on transcripts of her oral history for, um, background for this book. And so she said it was just, it was a disaster. The people that he had recruited were lovely people and they had money, but they had no idea how to run any of this. So she went back again to President Kennedy. By this time, his father had had a stroke. She went back to president Kennedy and said, look, I don't think I'm the person for the cultural commission. I I know that you've got lots of friends and, and I recommend you find someone else, but what do you think if we put together a commission to look for the causes and the cures of cancer and heart disease and stroke? And now of course, because it had touched his family, he was interested in that. Mary was also, and I think this is fascinating, very interested in the restoration of the White House. And that, of course, um, was Jackie Kennedy's, uh, the First Lady's pet project while she was First Lady. Mary flew with her to a very well-renowned uh, historian, furniture and art historian, who told them you know, what pieces were in storage uh, in Washington D.C., that they could use, and on the flight back, Mary gave Jackie her very first donation to the tune of ten thousand dollars to um, underwrite the renovation of the White House into the gorgeous facility it is today. I only saw it after Jackie's renovation. I don't know what it looked like, but I it, it I know from everything I've read, it is vastly improved from what it was before the Kennedys.
1: Now, President Johnson and Mary's relationship with that president, what was she able to accomplish?
2: President Johnson, um, of course, really struggled at the outset because he was following uh, on the heels of the tragic assassination. Um, He just sort of, he, he had actually wanted to be president um, and campaigned heavily during the primary season and right up until the Democratic Convention in 1960 when Kennedy was selected. So it was was odd for him to be able to fulfill his dream, but in such a dramatic and, and horribly tragic way. But Mary knew the Johnsons um, simply because he was um, important in the Senate. She needed senators on her side to keep enlarging medical research funding. So they came to know each other. And Lady Bird was one of Mary's best friends. So LBJ said to Mary early on, "Um, I want to carry on all the projects that President Kennedy had started. And so Mary talked to him about this commission that they had only just begun putting together. And interestingly, the Johnsons gave Mrs. Kennedy and the children uh, plenty of time to get moved out of the White House. But when they finally moved in, Mary Lasker was their first house guest. And in fact, Mary and Lady Bird went through um, the house that they had rented. Vice presidents at that time weren't provided, um, with a home like they are now. So Mary and Ladybird went through the house, their own house and selected pieces of art and furniture that would go into the family living quarters in the white house. So Johnson was very amenable to the cancer and heart and stroke commission. Um, and it did come to pass, but not, not in the the form that Mary had hoped. It was more focused on regional health centers as opposed to um, actual research. So she was mightily disappointed at that.
1: Now, President Nixon, what, you know, you were talking about a simple pill that's a simple physician can give for a suffering patient. Tell us about her relationship with Nixon and how she was awarded the Medal of Freedom.
2: Well, her relationship with Nixon boils down to only one man. They only had one uh, common friend. His name was Elmer Bopst. Elmer was a successful pharmaceutical um, CEO, and he and President Nixon were very good friends. In fact, Nixon called him um, his his second father. On Mary's side, because Elmer was successful and influential and a New Yorker, she knew him as well, and so she didn't think she'd be so completely welcomed into the White House as she had been under Roosevelt and Truman and um Kennedy and Johnson, but she needed the president to move uh, further into finding a cure for cancer. And she was convinced it was just around the corner, just a little more research for that simple pill. Um, But she had to figure out how to make this work. And so she started coming up with ideas. In fact, she'd even talked to Johnson about this before he left office. Since we were investigating outer space, why not investigate inner space, that being the human body? Why not create a NASA-like organization, which is completely independent of any other body within the government? It's a standalone. Why not create an organization like that completely separate from NIH to investigate cancer? So again, she went back to work with coming up with an idea for a um, commission. She put on the commission, um, and this was completely separate from the American Cancer Society. This was all going to be federal um, cancer research. She put on that commission uh, doctors, businessmen, um, some people who didn't have careers at all. Their career was just being rich, women as well as men. Um, people of color, as well as Caucasians. She wanted it to be as all-inclusive as possible. And they came up with um, a plan that they presented to the president of a way that we could really get serious about finding a cure to for cancer and managing heart disease. But by this time, Albert Lasker had died of a return of his cancer. So for Mary, it was really all about, about cancer. The heart disease spoke to her because both... Actually, her mother also died of heart disease. But for Mary, it was all about cancer. And Elmer Bobst was the link to Nixon to talk about you know, this commission. And Nixon really wasn't terribly interested. And then Senator Ted Kennedy became interested in the commission and in a cure for cancer. Nixon was terrified that Kennedy was going to be nominated for the 1972 presidential election. He did not want to run against another Kennedy Ted Kennedy didn't want to be president, but the more his name was tossed about, the higher he went in the polls. So Nixon realized that he could become the cancer cure-in-chief. And every time Kennedy had a headline about the Cancer Commission, Nixon would one-up him, and the ultimate was getting the national cancer act passed in 1971 it infused 1.3 billion dollars into research which was astronomical the equivalent of about 11 billion today Um, the national cancer institute was not taken out of NIH, but it enjoys a very special position in that it only answers to the president. It does not have to go through the layers of bureaucracy of the rest of the NIH institutes. And they also created a National Cancer Advisory Board, again, peopled by a number of individuals, not in the medical field, to act sort of as oversight, as the Institute was awarding grants and doing research. It was really marvelous. It really was. And and it was actually Johnson who awarded Mary the Medal of Freedom. But Mary it was cute. When Nixon was elected in 1968, she called him a president of disastrous proportions. And At the end of 1971, when the Cancer Act had been signed, she said, you know, he may just be the most sympathetic president we've ever had.
1: That's interesting. Now, you talked about Mary as being a citizen advocate, um, and she met Dwight Rogers and his son. Tell us about that story.
2: Well, Congressman Rogers Um, So this would be as they were um, working on getting the cancer act through Congress, the Senate passed the act without a problem. But when it came to the House, Senator Rogers um, was the head of the committee in the House um, that was going to hear about this cancer act. And he made it very plain that he was not going to roll over quite so easily. He had a lot of friends in high places who did not want the Cancer Institute taken out of NIH. And so they fought long and hard. And again, the drama is pretty remarkable. And I'll tell you, Deidre, As an author, you try to obviously write a book that's interesting. I mean, I'm assuming that's what other authors do. That's what I do. And sometimes you have to explain the way things work in order to have your readers understand the remarkable success of your book's focus. So the way laws travel through Congress and finally get passed Um, even then, even 50 years ago, it was, it was crazy. It was time consuming. A lot of the steps they had to take were taken only because it had always been done that way. It's no wonder that we can't get things through Congress today. It's really very interesting. The difference, however, up until this present time is that, and this particular topic is that both sides of the aisle somebody had to give in order to, all of them had to give in order for success. So in other words, it couldn't just go marching down the Republicans on one side, the Democrats on the other. And that was helped by the fact that cancer doesn't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Both get cancer with the same amount of frequency and the same amount of deaths. So, so that made the story a little bit easier, but it was not an easy job to get done. That's for sure.
1: Absolutely. Now, in Chapter 17, if you think research is expensive, try disease. What was that whole chapter about in terms of what Mary wanted to accomplish?
2: Well, research is expensive. Um, There's no doubt about that. And that was part of what people were dragging their feet over is the the amounts of money that mary was requesting and that the the scientists were requesting they were astronomical amounts of money and the federal budget is so divided up um defense being the number one expenditure and of course that's not something you could take your eye off but at the same time mary's point was um and she had learned this from albert people who get sick become a drain on that same society which is paying taxes to keep the federal budget funded so Albert taught her right when she began her, her uh, lobbying um, to put her facts and figures into understandable pieces that the that a layperson could understand so rather than just simply saying cancer, kills X percent of the population, or because of cancer, X percent of the population can't work, Mary translated that into dollars and cents and explained to the media, to her friends who were helping fund um, her different projects, and to the Congress people that they were losing money at an, ex- at an extraordinary rate because people were contracting and dying of cancer. And no matter what the research bill was, it was always going to be less than, than cancer itself. And Mary put her own money where her mouth was as well. She and Albert had amassed one of the United States' largest ever private art collections. And in the 1970s, late 70s and early 60s, a new substance called interferon was being experimented with in the realm of cancer. It is a a substance in blood that's very hard to procure because you have to run the blood through a centrifuge a number of times, and I'm simplifying this mostly because I don't understand it. You can only use human blood. You can't substitute animal blood for it. And it was only being researched in Finland. Mary sold a collection of Fujitas. Um, Renee Fujita was a French-Japanese impressionist. She raised $2 million to send um, two people to Finland to buy as much interferon that they could find, bring it back. And then that was divided between um, the National Institutes of Health and the American Cancer Society to see if it indeed could move the needle on cancer. And it was found to be effective in a few cancers. It wasn't the magic pill Mary had hoped for. And it also had um, had some... uses in the AIDS epidemic, which was um, building at the same
1: time. On February 24, 21st, 1994, um, Mary passed away, but you said she was ahead of her time. And what is the message you would like to leave the reader with in knowing so much about Mary and her advancement of cancer.
2: As I said at the outset, I'm intrigued by people who do things not because they have to, but because they see that they can possibly change something in someone's life in a small or a large way. Mary could have very easily just done fashion shows and lunches and collected art and jewelry, but that that wasn't what her calling was. So I think one of the very first things I want readers to think about when they get to the last page is that that sort of is incumbent upon all of us to, to make whatever large or small change we can in the world around us. Because here's what happens. It, it grows. It amortizes as time goes by. So whatever was worked on with the money from the National Cancer Act that was allocated in 1971 all of a sudden that money started saving people and those people went on to do great things and the things they did went on to do great things. And I think that when you realize that, you know, you're, you might just be one little flower in a garden, but your seeds can produce a lot of flowers. So that's one of the first things I want people to read and understand. And secondly, I think it's important to know that, um, that there's good in everyone. It doesn't matter where you come from, how much you have or don't have, whether you're famous or not, we're humans. We're all exposed to the same risks. We all have the potential for the same illnesses, the same sadnesses, the same, we're all going to die. And so reading about someone who was so privileged, who just simply took it upon herself to do what she did. I think that's a really important thing. And then lastly, I love researching at the National Archives and the Washington DC building on Constitution Avenue above the front door is uh, etched into the stone. The words past is prologue, meaning that Our past, whether it's 20 years ago or two minutes ago, is just the beginning of what's going to happen in the future. It's just the prologue to the future. And learning about the past, this is obviously not my own saying, but learning about the past, learning about bad things in the past will help us prevent from doing them in the future. Learning about good things in the past hopefully will also
1: guide the future. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the name of the book that you're working on next?
2: Yes, ma'am. So the new book is, the working title is Radical Sisters. It is the story of Shirley Temple Black, Rose Kushner, and Evelyn Lauder, who was Estee Lauder's daughter-in-law, and how they... Contributed, completely without knowing it, to the women's health revolution of the 70s, 80s, and 90s.
1: Well, we'll be, look, <laughs> we'll be looking forward to that book. And- October of-
2: October of 2025. And, um, and I hope that um, if listeners read Crusade to Life, or excuse me, Crusade to Heal America, that um, they'll drop me a note at judithlpearson.com. I'd love to hear from them.
1: Thank you again for being on the podcast. And we look forward to all of the books that you will be producing in the future.
2: Thanks, Deidre.